You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. Small groups. All right, raise your hand if you have been in one of our small groups. Praise the Lord. And did it not bless your life amazingly? You guys, we have an incredible small groups director in Gillian Berry, and she has been pursuing God. Yeah. She has been pursuing God, pursuing his will. And God, you guys, small groups are legitimately just so amazing. They will bless your life uh, because life is hard sometimes, right? (laughs) We need people around us who will love us and encourage us and help us grow and stretch us. And so I encourage you this morning, sign up for a small group. Go to the back, uh, get the Church Center app on your phone, scroll through them. There are lots of great options and God is going to do something really amazing in your life. So sign up for small groups. That's my big plug this morning. (laughs) I am so excited to be preaching this morning during our Elijah series. Uh, Pastor Josh kicked us off last week. Uh, If you weren't here, he talked about Elijah and the making of a man of God and took us through uh, Elijah in the Kareth Ravine really teaching us that uh, sometimes God has to do something in you to do something through you. Uh, If you have not listened to it, I encourage you, go back and listen to it. It was incredibly powerful, um, and it will really speak to your life. But today, I'm excited because I get to do uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, which is an incredibly powerful portion of Scripture. And uh, we're going to actually just be in the last half of this chapter. So I'm going to sum up a little bit um, of what happens in the beginning. As Josh left us last week with Elijah, he was with the widow. Uh, The drought had come. It had been about three years of a drought. Uh, Elijah raises the widow's son back from the dead. Amazing moment. Uh, And then at the end of that, at the beginning of chapter 18, God speaks to Elijah and he says, it's time. Go present yourself to Ahab because I'm going to end the drought. And so uh, Ahab, or excuse me, Elijah goes and finds Ahab. And that's where we start off in verse 17, uh, chapter 18. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Let's pray this morning. God, we just thank you so much that your word is living and active. God, we thank you that you speak to us through your scripture. And so, God, I pray that as we read these words today and as we dive into your word, God, would you speak to our hearts. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move within us, God, and would we have ears to hear what you need us to hear this morning. God, we thank you and we love you. We give this morning to you. In your name, amen. Last week, uh, Pastor Josh gave us a little bit of the context of who Ahab and who Jezebel are in this biblical narrative. We know Ahab is an evil king, and Jezebel, his wife, is pretty much hands down one of the most evil women all of history. If you know someone named Jezebel, I'm so sorry. I I don't know why they chose that name, but she's one of the most evil people in all of history. But I don't know about you, I really love history, and I really love learning the context of a situation. And so this morning, uh, can we nerd out a little bit on the history of what brought Israel to this place? Where are my Old Testament people at? (laughs) 
I love reading the Old Testament. I know if you didn't raise your hand, are you really a Christian? I'm just kidding. Um, the Old Testament is so powerful and so great. And so I think sometimes when we read it, it feels so heavy. But when you read it from start to end and you think about how God is weaving this incredible story all through Scripture, he really reveals some amazing things. And so as we uh, talk a little bit about the history of what led Israel to this place, um, I, I'm excited about it because I think there's so much that God wants to teach us. So Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah on Mount Carmel. If we go 500 years before this, uh, Moses has just led the Israelites through the desert, and Joshua is now in charge, and Joshua is about to lead the Israelites across the Jordan and into the promised land, the land that God has told them is flowing with milk and honey, the land that he's told them that he's going to give them, and the land that they didn't enter into 40 years before because they were too afraid and didn't trust God for it. But now is the moment when Joshua is leading them across the Jordan, and they have their first victory at the Battle of Jericho when they march around this very fortified city. There's no weapons. They just march around it with the Ark of the Covenant, which is God's presence. They march around it, and they worship God. They give a battle cry, and God knocks the walls down. Miraculous victory. So they have their first victory in the Promised Land. After this, there is kind of a strategic military movement all throughout the promised land as God is calling them to deal with the inhabitants that live there. He tells them to wipe out some of the inhabitants of the people who are living in the promised land. But when you get to the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua, we have this kind of laundry list of all of the tribes of Israel, the places that they went and it usually says something like, but they did not drive out the people completely, and now they're uh, doing forced labor. So they didn't do what God had told them to do, and they did not wipe out the people. And I think sometimes when we read these portions of Scripture, we can get that kind of perspective. You hear people talk about that, that our God must be a really angry and hateful God. But the reality is that God was trying to protect his people. If you were with us last fall for our Angels and Demons series, Pastor Josh talked a little bit about this. The people who were living in that area were descendants of what is called the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are, it, we're not going to go into it fully because it's a really big topic, but suffice it to say the Nephilim are the offspring of fallen angels and humans. So they're an abomination to God, and they are uh, worshiping uh, demons and Satan. So that is the culture of this area. That's what these people are doing. And so that's why God is telling them, you need to go out and you need to wipe them out. Because they uh, worship their gods through cult prostitution and through human sacrifice, especially child sacrifice. And so God says, you need to remove them from the land because I'm going to be the God of this land and not, those, not uh, the gods that these people follow. And they were specifically the Canaanites. Um, and uh, in Jeremiah 19.5, it actually talks to us about the kind of worship that they did. It says, uh, and they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as a burnt offering to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. This is the kind of worship that was going on in the promised land when the Israelites entered. And so that's where we get to at the end of Joshua is that they have not wiped out these people. And that leads us into Judges. And the book of Judges takes us through about 300 years of Israel's history in the promised land as they are still conquering areas and they're still moving into places. And it goes a lot like this. And the people again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, worshiping the Baals and following after false gods. And so God continuously is sending judges to Israel, to the nation, to remind them who he is, to remind them who they are, and to restore the, the nation back to solely worshiping God. But it's a cycle. And it is continuously happening over and over again for 300 years. Then we get to the end of Judges. 
And the people are like, you know what? We're tired of this. Uh, will you just give us a king so that he can lead us and fight our battles for us and take care of us? We want to be like all the nations around us. And Samuel, who is the prophet of the Lord at the time, as they tell him this, he's like, why would you ever want this evil thing? This is an evil thing that you are asking of God to do because there are a, uh, a nation that is supposed to be solely ruled by God and they want to bring in a human king to fight their battles as though they had forgotten that God fought the battle for them at Jericho. But God tells Samuel, he's like, they aren't rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Uh, give them a king, but tell them all the things that a king is going to mean for them. It means that their children are going to be enslaved. It means that he's going to take whatever he wants, the choicest lands, the choicest foods. He's going to take the choicest animals, and he's going to rule over you. And people are like, nope, that's what we want. We want a king to rule over us. And so Samuel anoints Saul, and he is the first king of Israel. And if you have read it all about Saul, he starts off, it seems like he's going to be a good king. He has humility, but it turns out that his humility is a false humility that is rooted in his insecurity. And so his reign is marked by constantly pursuing uh, to kill David, who has been uh, anointed to be the next king, because he's constantly just fighting against this insecurity that he has. Saul dies. And David is established as the king over Israel. And David is a man after God's own heart. He restores the worship of God. He uh, brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He writes most of the book of Psalms. He is, we read about how he danced in front of the Lord. You know, he is a man after God's own heart. Now he's human, and so he makes mistakes. But whenever he is confronted with a mistake, he repents and he turns back to God. Then we have Solomon, which is kind of where it all goes south. Solomon starts again as an amazing king. God comes to him at the beginning of his reign and says, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He asks for wisdom, which I think is an incredible— you have to be a little bit wise already to make the request for wisdom. Me, I'm like, ah, 500 Ferraris? I don't know. But Solomon asks for wisdom, and God grants it to him, and he's known as one of the wisest people to have ever lived. He writes the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He was an amazingly wise king. But Solomon had an Achilles heel— Pastor Josh mentioned it last week. We're only supposed to have one of these, but he had a thousand. Do you guys know what it was? <laughs> Wives. <laughs> only supposed to have one. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I, yeah, I'm like, how did he even have time for that? I don't understand. But Solomon, so he has all these wives, and this is really where his heart begins to turn away from the Lord. 1 Kings 11 says, Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, all part of these people that God had called them to remove. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. It's a plug right there for, like, don't do missionary dating, guys. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. 
Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Did I mention that Solomon was also the one who built the temple? Like, he built the temple to the Lord in Jerusalem. And then as his life goes, he ends up building temples and high places for all these other foreign gods. His wives had turned his heart away from the Lord. After Solomon has done all this, basically God says to him, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you because you have not pursued me and devoted yourself to me wholly. And that is exactly what happens. Solomon was one of the wisest men on the planet. His son uh, Rehoboam, maybe one of the most foolish. And because of his foolishness, God tears the kingdom away. He leaves the line uh, of David is the kingdom of Judah. And the other ten tribes become the kingdom of Israel. And so the kingdom of Israel is divided. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, son of Nebat, is the king in Israel. And again, if you read 1 Kings, you'll see his name a million times. Because every time a new king comes up, it'll say, And then Asab was king over Israel. And he did all the evil of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and even more. God is meant to be the sole God of this kingdom. And yet they followed other gods. They put other places, other altars that they were worshiping at. And then we get into the rest of 1 Kings and we see conspiracy, murder, over and over again, evil done in the eyes of the Lord in the kingdom of Israel. And so we have this 500-year history of Israel doing this. And this is why Elijah said, choose who you're going to follow. Follow God if he is God, or follow Baal if he is God. Because they had been trying to serve both. They had been one foot on one side and one foot on the other. And I think sometimes we can read this history, and we can just think like, man, Israel is so dumb how do they continually do the same thing over and over again? How can they sacrifice their children to idols? Because that is what Baal worship is. But then we look at our own lives, and I'm like, I would never do that. I would never sacrifice my child. But then, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to pursue uh, money or I'm going to pursue this job. I'm going to pursue this provision or this status symbol in my life. I'm going to work 80 hours a week and, you know, my children are going to get the scraps. I'm going to sacrifice my children on the altar of what I want to do, putting myself in the place of God in my life. I think it's so easy to look back and judge, but if we look right now in our own hearts and in our own society and in our own culture, how often are we sacrificing at the altars of some false gods? And I think, you know, Israel didn't just like cross the Jordan and have this amazing victory at Jericho and go, you know what we're going to do? We're going to serve these other gods now. God, I know that you've provided in this incredibly miraculous, supernatural way, but I think I'm going to do this other thing now. No, it, it happened over time. It was the disobedience, even small disobedience, but it happens both intentionally and unintentionally. False idols can become in our lives. About two years ago, I, uh, I decided to quit my job. And I have always worked. I have always worked full-time and been just, I'm that person who's constantly going. My parents have this, like, very, like, steady and easy life. And every time I talk to them, they'd be like, you're so busy. What are you doing today? And I'm like, well, I feel like I live my life like all my peers. But when I really looked at it, it was just like thing after thing after thing after thing. And, uh, but I felt like we had just finished our adoption study. We had received our certification. Lucy was getting ready to start kindergarten. And I just felt so clearly that God was calling me to lay down the job. He was calling me to lay down that provision and uh, to become a stay-at-home mom. 
And basically from the time that I quit my job until about six months ago, it seemed like every time I turned around, there was something in our life that was costing us this really crazy, unexpected amount of money. The thing that I used to make at my job. Um, And uh, it started when we were cooking one night and Josh sliced off a huge chunk of his thumb, which meant he had to go to the emergency room, which if you haven't been there recently, it is pretty pricey. I like just inflation. I don't know. But uh, so it started with that. And then it was like literally every single month there was something wrong with my car. I, I, I could not figure it out. I just about lost my mind. And uh, those of you who know me, when we bought our new car, like that was the thing. I just didn't want to take it to the shop every single week. Like our air conditioning went out multiple times. Um, The windows in the car kept like literally breaking and falling into the door. Just like totally wild things. And it was so funny because every, I mean, it wasn't funny if I'm being honest, (laughs) but it was, I, interesting because every single time something like this happened, God would immediately provide. I mean, it was so wild. Like, we would get the most random checks from the most random things, and um, it was, you know, just amazing God's provision. But from the moment I quit my job, I kid you not, I don't think I've had as many conversations as I've ever had with Josh about, well, okay, what if I did this so that I could make money? Or what if I grew our side business in this way, and then I could make more money, and we could provide, we could go on vacations, I could get these things that I want. It was just a constant look at like, okay, God, I see all these crazy things are happening in our life, and even though you're providing for them, um, I'm just focusing on the problem, and I'm looking at the exact thing that I think is going to fix it, the thing I'm going to put in the place, and it was money. It was the provision. I had stopped looking at the person who was actually providing for me, and I had focused my heart solely on the provision. So the very thing that I quit my job to do, to focus more on my family, to focus more on my calling and my position at this church, I was thinking now about like, okay, well, um, if I do this on a Saturday, I could make a lot of money, and that would, you know, last me for a while. And then it was, well, I could go and do this thing for a weekend, and, I, you know, I'd miss one Sunday, but I mean, it's, it's just one Sunday. It's not a big deal, you know, like, that's, that's fine. I'm just going to miss that one Sunday. And it just this thing after another. It was never going to be enough. Every time I, I turned around, I was trying to figure out how I could provide for my family, how I could do the things that were necessary. And it was, it's not that that is bad. It's not that the hustle, it's not gr- that grit is bad. It's not that being tough is bad. But it's when I focused all of my energy and when I told God that I didn't trust him, that I had to trust these other things to provide for me, that's where the problem came. I didn't start that way, right? My intentions were good. I was like, I want to be a good mom. I want to be a good wife. I want to be a good steward. I want to provide for my family. But slowly but surely, as I took my eyes off of God as my provider and started looking at the provision, my heart was turned away. But the reality is that those things, that false God of provision and money, is never going to be able to provide. It's not real. Baal promised things to Israel. He wasn't just another God of another thing that they're like, I'm just going to pick this one. Baal was a God of thunder, of storms, and of fertility, specifically fertility of the land. And Israel was an agricultural society, so they lived and died off of what the earth did. They needed the rain because they needed the crops to grow, because they needed their animals to graze. They needed it. It literally was life and death to them. But it required something so much more of them, this false god that required cult prostitution and child sacrifice. False gods are always going to promise what they cannot provide. But I love how amazing God is. In those moments when it feels like, you know, you're trusting the Lord for something, 
and then if something happens and goes wrong, you're trusting your, your God for the provision in your life, and he's giving you this amazing job, and then all of a sudden you lose that job, or all of a sudden you don't get paid as much as you think you're going to get paid. You take your eyes off of the God who is providing for you, and you're like, well, how can I supplement? I, I want to trust God, but also I'm kind of nervous about this thing, and so I'm going to supplement. I love Jesus. In Matthew 6, 25 through 33, he tells us this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows what you need. He knows you, and he says, I am the ultimate provider of all of those things. What's more is that these false idols don't just promise us what they can't provide, but they go beyond that and they put us in chains. Baal was not all-powerful. If he, if he was, he would be God, but he's not God. Baal cannot provide what he promises, and that is why there's been a drought for three years. 1 Kings 18, we're going to pick up verse 25. says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I so resonate with Elijah in this moment, his sarcastic nature. I love that that's in the Bible. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which is just basically an evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Does that sound like a loving God that you want to follow? Is leading you, guiding you? No. But they were absolutely enslaved to Baal, these prophets. They trusted him, and they put their trust in something that had no foundation, that was not true, and that was evil. And so more than just calling upon him, they had to do all these other things. They had to uh, do this cult prostitution. They had to sacrifice their children on the altar. They cut themselves how often do these false gods take us so much farther than we ever thought? Sometimes we put our trust in our money, and we put our trust, or maybe for you, it's your self-image. You struggle with insecurity. You struggle with knowing who you are in your identity, and so you become enslaved to the opinion of others. Instagram has become an echo chamber where we just put up our pictures and we just wait and wait and wait for someone to give us a like, for someone to comment, someone say how amazing you look, for someone to say, man, you're such a great person. And we become enslaved to the likes and the opinions of others. Their validation is what only validates us. And yet it's never enough. It's never enough. We'll never find fulfillment. We'll never find our identity. We'll never find wholeness or peace in that. 
our culture loves to talk about sexual freedom and loves to talk about how do whatever makes you feel good. Find any pleasure because it's what's going to satisfy you. It's what's going to make you feel wanted. It's what's going to make you feel valued. So we have all of these people who are addicted to pornography, and yet every single time they come back for more, they're not satisfied. There is no satisfaction because there is no truth. There's no wholeness. It's not giving them the identity that God created them to have. And their desire is to feel loved. Their desire is to feel wanted. Their desire is to feel accepted and loved. And yet they are constantly coming back to this thing that will never, ever satisfy. And so we become enslaved to these things. Never satisfied, always pursuing more. John 8, 44 tells us that Satan is the father of lies. And that is his lie. That something other than God is going to satisfy us. It's like you're at your job and you don't feel completely fulfilled. Well, just pursue, pursue this uh, other position. Yeah, you're going to have to give uh, countless hours and countless amount of your time. You're going to have to step away from your family. You're going to have to step away from these things. But that's what's going to make you feel like you have this identity. That's what's going to give you worth. And it's just constant, a constant uh, a, a break, or, um, attack from the enemy against us. He is the father of lies, and he is going to lie to you. But I love what God does in this moment with Elijah and the prophets and Israel, because he's not trying to attack his people. He's bringing them close because he wants to bring them freedom. They have been following after these false gods who have promised them prosperity, promised them security, promised them their identity, and yet they are completely unfulfilled. God is saying, I will bring freedom. I will bring prosperity. I will bring wholeness and security and community and faithfulness. Follow me because I am the answer. And that's what he does when he brings Elijah to the mountain. He's meant to offer freedom to the people rather than enslavement. Because this is who our God is. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the God that we want to follow. That's the God that we want on the throne because he promises life and life to the full. He promises steadfast love. He promises faithfulness even when we are not faithful. That is the God who is over all. And that is the God that Israel is meant to follow wholly with all of their heart, not wavering back and forth, not limping back and forth, like Elijah says, between Baal who promises what can't, but he can't deliver, but God who is the ultimate authority. They were looking to him for peace and security. They were looking to Baal for prosperity. We are looking to money for our identity. We're looking to money to satisfy us. We're looking to the uh, uh, affirmation of others to tell us who we are. But God says, I know you. God says, I am your identity. False gods will promise what only God can deliver. False gods will promise what only God can deliver. They're going to promise you freedom, but only God brings freedom. Only following him fully with all of our heart will bring freedom in our lives. False gods are out there. We don't call them by Baal or Chemosh. But you know what they are. Their money, their sex, their pleasure, their affirmation of others. So when those things come against us, when we know God is supposed to be first and only in our lives, how do we do battle? How do we fight these false gods who are coming against us? I think Elijah brings the most amazing example, and he gives us a formula for what God is calling us to do. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to encourage you right now, write this down. 
We're to build the altar. Build the altar. 1 Kings 18, 30 through 32 says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. I love that that's how he starts. God is not a distant God. He's near, and he wants to be close to you. It says, And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. This is what Joshua did 500 years ago when he crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land. He took 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel and made an altar to the Lord, a place where worship happened, a place where they remembered who God was and what he had done. This is what God is calling you to do in your life. He's calling you to build the altar. We need to build or maybe rebuild the altar in our heart. God is calling you to worship him. He's calling you to pray and seek his face. Parents, your kids need to see you worshiping God. They need to see you reading your Bible. They need to see you interacting with God on a daily basis. We need to build the altar. And I love that he does this with the 12 stones and the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, this is why knowing the history and knowing the context is so important He's reminding them of the promise that God gave them when they entered the land. He said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. He's reminding them of who they are. And if you remember, the kingdom is divided at this point. And so he's gently and kindly reminding them, my promises are still good because I am still a good God. God wants us to remember his promises. I think that's the thing with Israel is we just say like, how does this keep happening, this cycle over and over again? And it's because we forget. I, I literally forget most of what happened yesterday. That happens to me on a daily basis. It's so easy to get distracted and, with the things that are going on around us, the real things that are going on around us, the difficulties and the strife in life, and to become distracted and to forget what God has done and to forget what he has promised. And so when we build the altar, when we worship God, we remember who he says he is. The Bible is amazing. And as you read it, God's going to plant that word in your heart. You know, he says that he's God, our provider. It says that he is the God who sees us. In those moments when you feel so alone, you can remember, God is the God who sees me. We remember that he is all-powerful. We remember that he has steadfast love for us and that he will never fail. We remember that Jesus says that he is with us always to the very end of the age, that he will never leave us and never forsake us. And we remember who he says we are. We don't get lost in who the world tells us that we are, but we remember who God tells us that we are. If you've ever been up at the altar, then you have heard me probably pray this over you. I always start with people by praying who God says that they are, that they are conquerors and co-heirs with Christ, that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that they were chosen before the foundation of the earth, and that they're God's workmanship. I'm building your foundation. I'm building the stones and saying, this is who God has said you are. Everything else is sinking sand. What the world says you are, they might like you today, but they're going to cancel you tomorrow. God says who you are, and he has the ultimate authority, and he has the last word. So when I pray those things over you, it's because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue praying, and I'm going to show you what God is doing in your life, but I want you to remember first and foremost who he says you are. We have to build the altar. Next, we dig the trenches. We build the altar. We dig the trenches. 1 Kings 18, 32 through 35. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. 
And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. This is like extra credit, right? Extra credit for what he's doing. This is not something that he had the prophets of Baal do, but Elijah is so confident in who God is and what he said he's going to do that he digs a trench around the altar. And I love Pastor Josh last week talked about the flex of using uh, the drought to confront Baal because this is the very thing that they haven't seen for three years. He's filling this trench with water. How much faith does it take to say, you know this thing that's really, really precious because we have none of it? I'm going to fill this ditch with it. And God is going to come and he's going to lick it up. He's going to burn in the fire. It takes extra faith to do that. It's because Elijah trusted God. Maybe you need to take the things, the false gods in your life that you're putting your trust in, and you need to ask God for extra faith. If you're struggling with money, if you're struggling with putting all of your hope in money, God is calling you to, take, to give generously. If you're looking at your bank account and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to tithe, God is calling you to tithe. He's calling you to do something extraordinary. He's calling you to give generously. If you're so wrapped up in yourself, Maybe you are that person that's constantly posting on Instagram because all you can think about is the, the likes that you're going to get and you're hoping that that person sees it and that they comment something on it and they'll make you feel good about yourself. If you've been focusing so much on self-care that you haven't looked at your neighbors or the people around you, God is calling you to give up yourself. Maybe this is the semester you need to go to Love the Block every single week. Love the block will not only bless your life, but it will cause you to look at someone other than yourself. It's so good, you guys, because they can't give you anything. They're not going to add to your brand. They're not going to look, you know, we don't take pictures and you surely wouldn't post them. They're not, it's not for you. It's for them. But isn't it amazing when we do that, God plants the identity that he has for you in your heart. Because by showing the value that God has for other people, he's going to plant that value in your heart. You look at people and you say, God loves you. And you say, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to believe miracles for you in your life. God is like, it's like a mirror. God is putting that right back on you. He says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm going to do a miracle in your life. You need to take the focus off of yourself and put it on others. We need to have the extra faith. We need to give God an opportunity to do something miraculous in our lives. God wants you to dig the trenches. Give him an opportunity. We build the altars. We dig the trenches. And we pray. God is calling you to pray. Verses 36 through 37 And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, again reminding them who he is, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What a powerful prayer. God, remind them that you are God. Remind them who they are. Elijah's prayer came out of this amazing time that he had spent with God. During the entire season of the drought, God had been calling him to depend on him. He'd been calling him to be obedient. He'd been calling him to serve him and him alone and to trust him for everything. This prayer came from the season of the Kareth Ravine where he had only God to trust in and God constantly provided for him. It's not simply a prayer that God would free them from the Baals, that he would free them from worshiping false gods and false idols, 
It was a prayer for the power and the presence of God to come. Because how many of us know it doesn't work to just remove the idol? We have to put God in his place. We have to put him back on the throne. The Bible is so clear about that. If you clean it up and make it look all nice, but you don't put God in his rightful place, it's funny how quickly those things come right back at you. You have to trust God for your provision. You have to trust God that you have value, that you have worth. You have to trust him for your identity. In those moments when the world is telling you to find satisfaction, to find pleasure, to find community and relationship through sex, you have to trust God that he is for you. You have to trust him that he has good things and good plans for you. We have to trust him and we have to talk to him. We have to pray and seek him with our whole heart and with our whole mind. We have to pray. So how do we do battle against these false idols that come against us? We build the altar. We dig the trenches. And we pray. What an amazing prayer this is that Elijah does. We read this part about what the prophets of Baal did and how they were constantly trying more and more things, becoming more and more crazy, offering more and more of themselves only to receive absolutely nothing. It said no one answered, no one paid attention, no one heard. And yet Elijah calls on God and he says, remind them who you are, remind them that you are God and remind them that they are your children. And then God does what only God can do, and he sends the fire. Verses 38 through 40, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. God brings the fire. Baal promises it, but he can't deliver. Because God is more powerful, he is stronger, he is greater. He is the one who brings the fire. The Bible has many examples of this, but the fire was a symbol of the presence of God. When the Israelites were in the desert wandering around, they were guided by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The most powerful imagery, God was leading them. His presence was there in the fire. In the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciple, it says he falls as tongues of fire. Elijah prayed and God's fire, his presence fell because we need his presence. We need his power. If we're going to make him Lord of our life, we need his power and his presence working in us. That is how we get freedom is when his power and his presence are over our lives. In order to live in the freedom that God has given us, we must live in his presence. We must live in his power. Would you stand with me this morning? In a moment, I'm going to open up the altars, but I want us to just first have a moment with God. So would you bow your heads with me and would you close your eyes? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you have never put God on the throne of your heart. And you've been pushing and working and looking everywhere else for identity, for love, for acceptance. And God is saying, I am here. I am here for you. I see you. I know you. You are my child and I love you. And I want to be on the throne of your life because I'm going to provide freedom that's you this morning, I want you to hear Jesus is saying to you, come to me. I love Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28 says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God is calling you to lay down the false idols in your life and to put him on the throne. So this morning, if you have never made that decision, I wanna give you the opportunity right now. If you're saying, Jesus, I wanna make you the Lord of my life, I trust you, and where all of these other things have failed and not delivered, I know that you are God and that you love me, you are for me. I'm gonna invite you right now to raise your hand. You can raise it and put it back down. If you're joining us online, just throw up an emoji, raise your hand. God sees you and he loves you and he knows you. And he says, today I welcome you into my kingdom where you will find life and life to the full, where you will find joy and peace and hope that the world will never deliver on. God, we thank you that you are here in this moment. We thank you that there are people who are turning their hearts to you. They are finding freedom and life and joy and love in you, Jesus. God, we give it to you. Thank you, God. Maybe you're here and you know that God provides truth. You know that God provides freedom because you've seen him do it in your life. This morning, he is calling you to lay down your false gods. Maybe it didn't happen on purpose, it happened unintentionally, but slowly but surely you took your eyes off of the God who was the provider in your life and you put it on the provision. You took your eyes off the God who gives you your identity and you put it on Instagram. You trusted Instagram for love and affection and closeness. God is saying, put me in my rightful place. He's saying, don't waver between me and anything else. Put me in my rightful place. He wants to provide freedom for you this morning. We're gonna sing this amazing song called Refiner. And I just, I love it. It talks about the refining fire of God. And I think sometimes when we hear those words, it can actually can feel a little scary. You're like, God is gonna consume me with fire. But it's just like Elijah on the mountain. God is not calling us to attack us. He's not calling us to hurt us. He's calling us to provide us freedom. He knows that these other things that we are wavering back and forth, that they are leading to death. They lead to pain. They lead to lack of fulfillment. And he says, I alone provide freedom. So I wanna refine you like gold is refined. I wanna remove the impurities. I wanna remove anything that would distract you from me. And I want you to come and put me on the throne of your life fully. So this morning we're gonna worship and we're gonna seek God. And I encourage you, I invite you, I'm telling you, if you have a false God in your life, if you have stopped putting your hope, trust, and faith in God and God alone and have looked to something else to satisfy you, come to the altar, lay it before him. Tell him, God, I repent, I repent, I repent. The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, just like Israel, and bow your heads before him. Build the altar, dig the trenches, and pray and seek him this morning. God, we give this moment to you. We ask, would you do what only you can do? Would you bring the fire? God, as we come and we repent and we lay it at your feet, would you consume everything that is not of you, Lord God? Would you place yourself on the, on the throne of our hearts and of our lives? God, would you do what only you can do this morning? In your mighty name, amen. I invite you right now, do not wait another moment. If you need to give God these false idols in your life, do it right now, bring it to him, let's worship.